The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast episode 10. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and I want to thank you for taking the time to tune into our podcast series. The goal of our podcast is to help our listeners expand their opera knowledge and our content is always drawn from live events, classes and lectures that we run throughout the opera season here at Lincoln Center in New York City. For today's episode, we are delving into the world of tenors. This will be the second iteration of our lectures on operatic voice types, and our previous voice types lecture, episode 5 on the soprano voice type, is actually our most popular podcast episode to date. So our topic today is here by popular demand, and what better way to celebrate our 10th episode than spending some time with the heroes and heartthrobs of the opera stage. Now I have to admit that as I was planning out all the content for this episode and compiling different excerpts, I realized that I had way too many examples than we would have time for, and part of this is because a lot of my favorite singers of all time and my favorite arias happen to be within the tenor territory. And so, even though we won't have time to get to everything I wanted to share with you, we have an excellent lineup of singers and what I think is a really fun and really great lineup of arias as well, with lots of variety. So we're going to try and get through as much as we possibly can. And in episode 5, when we talked about different kinds of sopranos, I gave quite a bit of background regarding the general concept of operatic voice types. So to avoid covering a lot of the same ground, I'm going to start by giving a quick summary of the background info that we talked about in episode 5, just kind of dusting off your memory, reminding us of some important terminology, and then we're going to dive into some of the more specific categories so we can get through all the different examples and singers that we have on the docket today. So in opera, the categorization of voice types is often referred to as Fach, and this is a German term literally meaning compartment or subject. The Germans developed the Fach system as a method of classifying singers according to the range of their voice, or the tessitura, that's our Italian word for range, and the weight of the voice, as well as the color or timbre of the voice. So both operatic roles and operatic singers can be categorized in the Fach system. So we have our large general categories, soprano, mezzo-soprano, tenor, and baritone, and bass. But then within these larger categories, there are several subcategories to break things down even further. And even with all of these subcategories of the Fach system, each and every operatic role has unique and individual demands that it makes on the singer, and every singer's voice has individual strengths and weaknesses and unique qualities to it. So the whole idea is that by analyzing these factors of tessitura, weight, and timbre of a singer's voice, 
and then analyzing what is called for in a specific operatic role, the Fach system can help pair singers with repertoire or roles that are a good fit for them. All of opera casting basically comes down to fitting voices to roles and roles to voices so that they complement each other as much as possible. But when you start getting into the Fach system, the terminology can become confusing because sometimes there is more than one word that we use for the same vocal category, depending on what language you are speaking and what country you are in, and there are some roles that can be cross-listed into more than one category. Furthermore, a singer is not restricted to just one category for their entire career. Every singer is different and every career follows a unique path. Some singers move and evolve from one category into the another slowly over time as the voice matures, but other singers are able to sing roles from multiple categories that are closely related all at the same time during their career. And then some singers fit squarely within one type of fach and they just stay there and make their bread and butter in this one area, while other singers just completely defy categorization altogether with extremely versatile voices. Even though we are just focusing on tenors in this episode, there is still so many subcategories of the tenor voice that we're not going to be able to hit every single one of these in this episode. But what I've done is tried to lay things out so that we cover the most common voice types that we see and hear on the stage today. And in doing so, we're going to hear some really fantastic singing, a wide variety of excerpts from composers across the operatic genre, and in some cases we're going to hear multiple recordings by the same singer as an example of how a singer can fit into more than one fach or more than one vocal category at one time. And similar to how we went about exploring different soprano voice types in episode 5, we are going to start with the lightest and highest tenor categories, or tessitura, and then work our way through the heavier and heavier voice categories, so that we progressively get more dramatic as we go along. So we begin with the countertenor. Countertenor roles are mainly found within Baroque music, and the history of this category can be linked back to male castrati roles. A castrato, singular, or the castrati, plural, was a male singer who had been castrated before going through puberty in order to maintain the boy's prepubescent tessitura. So as children, boys and girls generally have the same vocal ranges in the soprano or alto range. And this practice of castrating young boys to preserve this range was very popular in Italy in the 17th and 18th century. Castrati were employed as church musicians before the rise of opera, but then when opera exploded as a popular form of public entertainment in the early 1600s, the operatic stage became a place where good castrati could obtain fame and fortune. Because an adult castrato had a lung capacity of a grown man, but with the pitch range usually matching that of a female adult soprano, they could hold notes for an incredibly long time, and they trained the voice to execute intricate ornaments in these stunning displays of virtuosity. Because castrati were so popular on the Italian stage, there are many roles in Baroque and early classical opera that called for a castrato to sing the leading male character, the heroes and the heartthrobs. 
By the time we get to 1800, the tastes of the public had begun to change, and the castrati were eventually being replaced by tenors. We're going to get to more of that later on in the episode. And the act of castrating young boys for any purpose eventually became illegal in Italy, and then slowly faded from social practice. But since we have a large chunk of operatic repertoire that calls for a male character with a vocal range of a female soprano, or mezzo-soprano, those roles are now cast as either pants roles, referring to female sopranos or mezzos singing male characters, or male countertenors. Now, it's important to understand that countertenors are not castrati. Men who are countertenors usually have a baritone-like speaking voice and can oftentimes sing baritone range music as well. But what they have done is trained the falsetto in their voice to produce enough power and beauty of timbre to sing full voice and be heard over an orchestra while singing the pitches that match the soprano range. Like lyric sopranos, they can produce long legato lines where connection, fluidity, and grace of motion is the desired effect but they also need the flexibility of a coloratura soprano, as many of the countertenor roles have a lot of ornaments and fast-moving musical passages. And while a large part of the countertenor repertoire draws from operas in the Baroque era, there are actually several roles written in operas over the past 100 years or so that specifically ask for an adult male countertenor voice. So not turning a previously castrato sung role into a countertenor role, but actually designing the role itself for the countertenor sound. An example of this is Prospero from the Met's Baroque pasticcio, The Enchanted Island, or Oberon from Benjamin Britten's A Midsummer Night's Dream. One of the most well-known and active countertenors today is David Daniels, so to give you an idea of both the long legato singing and the fluid virtuosic flexibility that is called for in countertenor singing, we're going to hear two different clips. Our first example features David Daniels singing Venti Turbini from Handel's Rinaldo, and this is from an album that he released in 1998 titled Handel Operatic Arias, and the original aria was written for an alto castrato. So this clip really shows you the vocal fireworks that were a big part of the castrati singing style and that has now been transferred into the countertenor voice type. And in contrast, 
contrast to this, our second example will again feature David Daniels, but this time singing a very different type of excerpt. This is from Benjamin Britten's A Midsummer Night's Dream. David Daniels is singing the role of Oberon, and this is the aria excerpt Welcome Wanderer. And in this particular moment, really listen for the kind of long, fluid, connected, beautiful timbre that he has to produce for this. It's not a lot of vocal fireworks like in the handle that we just heard, but keep in mind as you listen to it that Benjamin Britten specifically asked for a countertenor voice to sing this role. So he didn't want a mezzo-soprano female singing it, he wanted a male countertenor. Welcome, wanderer! And this is from the Metropolitan Opera in the 2004-2005 season. Now we're going to move on to lyric tenors. 
Now, the term lyric tenor also tends to be used as a larger umbrella category with several different types of lyric tenors found within it. But generally speaking, the demands of all lyric tenor repertoire are parallel to that of the lyric soprano repertoire, a beautiful, sweet, smooth, and warm timbre that lends itself well to singing long, legato, connected vocal lines. Not too heavy, and everything needs to have a sense of brightness, gracefulness, and ease of motion. Also, a young, handsome, or dashing physical appearance is a big plus in this category because lyric tenors often sing the main male love interests in the plot. The two main divisions in the lyric tenor category are the light lyric tenor roles and the full lyric tenor roles. And then in addition to this, there's another kind of special category for what we call the tenore di grazia. So what exactly do we find in each of these subcategories? Let's start with the light lyric tenor, or in German we call this the lyrische tenor. Light lyric tenor roles include much of the Mozartian repertoire, as well as some Rossini and Donizetti. These are roles that require an extended top range, so a light lyric tenor needs strong high notes, but also a supple sound quality. Light lyric tenor roles include Alma Viva from the Barber of Seville, that's Rossini, Ferrando from Così fan tutte by Mozart, Belmonte from Abduction from the Seraglio by Mozart, Tamino from Die Zauberflöte or the Magic Flute, also by Mozart, Don Ottavio from Don Giovanni, another Mozart, and then there are other roles by some bel canto composers you can put in this category. Nemorino from Le Lazier d'Amore. Some people consider this a light lyric tenor role, although others would put it in other categories. And then there's even a Verdi role that is often considered a light lyric tenor role, the role of Alfredo in La Traviata. So to start off our examples of the light lyric tenor sound, we are going to start with a clip of the lyric tenor of all lyric tenors. This is the much beloved Fritz Wunderlich. We are going to hear Wunderlich sing Die Bildnis, which is Tamino's Act One aria in the Magic Flute, or Die Zauberflöte, by Mozart. And just to give you a little bit of background on Fritz Wunderlich, Fritz Wunderlich was an incredibly beloved tenor. He was known to be the most beautiful voice to ever grace the stage in opera, and extremely beloved in the Mozartian repertoire especially. But he died very suddenly in an accident while on vacation. He fell down a flight of stairs and was severely injured. He went into hospital and died just a few days later. So all of his recordings are especially treasured because his time was so tragically cut short. The recording you're going to hear now was originally recorded in 1964, but re-released in 2005 on an album titled The Magic of Fritz Wunderlich by Deutsche Grammophon. Thank you. 
Our next excerpt is from the role of Nemorino from Donizetti's La Lazier d'Amore. And this is the famous aria towards the end of the opera, Una Fortiva Lagrima. Now, this particular role can be cross-listed in other categories as well. We'll get to those a little bit later. But I really think that this particular aria demonstrates the lyric tenor sound of the role or why this role can be placed in the lyric tenor category because it has these beautiful long lines. It's a very mournful aria. And you have the voice paired with the bassoon, so you have this gorgeous kind of tenor bassoon mournful character in the aria. And it really is a very exposed aria for the voice as well, because there isn't a whole lot going on in the orchestration. It's a very delicate orchestration, so the voice is very exposed. And it's been sung by all the great tenors of the opera stage, all the great lyric tenors. But the tenor we're going to hear today is one who's actively singing at the Met, made a big splash with Nemorino when it opened the season a few years ago. So this is Matthew Polanzani from the Metropolitan Opera in 2012. before we move on to the full lyric tenor sound, the heavier lyric tenor repertoire, we're going to take a look at that little special category I mentioned, the tonore di grazia, or it can be called the leggero tenor or the tenorino by some. So the tenore di grazia can be thought of as the male parallel to the lyric coloratura soprano. So this particular category needs all the smooth, connected, graceful qualities of a lyric tenor sound, but the voice also needs to be very light, very agile, and capable of executing fast-moving, difficult passages of ornamentation. And the one thing that the tenore di grazia must have, and that is really unique and specific to this kind of subcategory, is the ability to bring the power and clarity of the chest voice into the extremely high end of their tessitura, or range. Not quite as high as a countertenor, they're never really flipping into falsetto, they never sing up in a range that parallels a female soprano, but they are basically as high up as you can get without moving into falsetto. 
And this brings us to an interesting little side note that I wanted to mention related to the tenor category and the history of singing. Of all the vocal categories in opera, the tenor voice, I think, has gone through the greatest and most interesting evolution in opera history. Before the bel canto era, which begins around 1800, the desired aesthetic of tenor singing was largely influenced by the castrati style of singing, in which the top notes of the tenor range were sung completely in head voice. Castrati were not only the most popular singers and the kind of stars of the opera stage at this time, but they were also a lot of the teachers of the time. The castrati were the big vocal teachers that taught other singers and other operatic hopefuls how to produce the sound. And because the castrati sound itself was so rooted in this kind of light style, because of the pitch range that they are able to get and just the timbre and aesthetic of the castrati voice, they were training tenors to sing in chest voice in the lower part of the register and then seamlessly transition into head voice for the highest part of the register. And we call this transition point the point where they had to flip from chest to head, the passaggio, the Italian word for, for elbow. And so there was, in all of the singing manuals, if you read any of the kind of period historical documents of castrati and teachers writing about how to teach singing, we know that they always stress that a true, advanced, mature singer who has mastered the art of singing knows how to move seamlessly from chest to head so that the audience does not feel a break even though they are changing where the sound is placed. And so there's a big important historical moment in the history of the tenor voice when tenors start bringing the placement and sound of the chest voice in their lower notes and bringing that chest voice up into the highest notes of the range. The chested tenor sound literally threw people back in their seats. It was stunning for audiences. The world had never heard this kind of sound, and everyone became immediately enthralled with this intensely powerful and heroic sound of the chested high C. And because of this, the socially constructed idea of what a masculine sound was on the opera stage slowly began to change. So there was certainly a divided opinion about this. The world didn't just suddenly all become enthralled with this sound, although it was incredibly popular. Different composers and performers certainly had divided opinions about the aesthetic that was created by the chested high C. For example, Rossini, after hearing Dupre perform, did not respond well to the sound at all, and he has been quoted saying, I don't like unnatural effects. It strikes my Italian ear as having a strident timbre, like a capon squawking as its throat is slit. End quote. But even though opinions were divided when this, when this sound first came onto the scene, basically once the tenor sound was out there and had been introduced to the public, there was no going back, and it has influenced aesthetics of tenor singing ever since. The use of head voice in the top range of the tenor voice quickly disappeared, and the desired aesthetic in tenor singing, along with the dramatic role of the tenor character, was forever changed. And it is the chested tenor sound, paired with the growth of the orchestra over the Romantic period, that eventually led to the emergence of more dramatic tenor voice categories, so what the Italians call the tenore di forza, 
We'll get into that category a little bit later in this episode, but for now I think it would be helpful if we hear an excerpt of a tenor singing in chest voice and then moving into head voice so you can hear the difference in timbre between what it sounds like when the voice is placed in one place in the body and then moved into another placement in the body. So in this clip, we have Luciano Pavarotti singing an excerpt from E Puritani, and what you're going to hear is him move in his chest voice, singing all the way up to a chested high C, bringing all that power and metallic edge of the chest into the highest top notes that he can produce. And then he actually goes higher in order to get above the high C, but to do that, he actually flips into head voice and or into falsetto, so you can hear this difference between chest and falsetto, and then when he goes back down again, he moves back again into chest voice. So it is really striking the difference of timbre between chest and head or chest and falsetto, and so I thought it would be helpful for you to hear this very noticeable change so that you get in your ear the chested tenor sound. interested about learning more about the time period in which this big shift happens in the castrato tenor singing, there is some really great scholarship on this in musicology. If you look up an article by John Potter in a journal called Early Music, the year 2007, volume 35, uh, pages 97 to 112, there is an article titled The Tenor Castrato Connection, 1760 to 1860. And essentially what this article does is it goes through and it outlines for you the evidence of how this shift happened between Castrati being the leading men and leading teachers on the opera stage and in the operatic art form and the slow shift towards tenors being the leading men and the leading singers and the heroes on the opera stage and that shift in changing how the tenor sound is produced and how it all coincides with this rise of the chested high tenor high C or the chested tenor sound. And if you can't get your hands on this particular article, John Potter has also published a book uh, in collaboration with Neil Sorrell titled The History of Singing. And so this is another book, I believe there's a chapter in The History of Singing that touches upon this same topic, this kind of tenor castrato shift in the early 1800s. But going back to the tenore di grazia, Sometimes this category is referred to in Italian as the tenorino category, with the ending ino being used almost as a term of endearment. For example, in the aria, the Puccini aria, O mio babino caro, the term babino is the Italian equivalent for daddy, so in saying daddy instead of father. 
So the term tenorino is almost a term of endearment for those tenors that we love so much that bounce around up in the high registers and play all these heroes that win our hearts on the stage. The tenorino, or tenore di grazia, are known for the beauty in this high range that they can produce and their ability to move the voice effortlessly and get up there into those high notes like a trumpet without any wavering or any kind of anxiety for the audience. We always know they're going to hit it and it's always a thrill when they do. To hear one of the most beloved tenorinos of our time, this is none other than Juan Diego Flores singing Ah Mes Amis, which is the big aria from Donizetti's La Fille du Regiment, where several high seas are called for in a row. And this is an aria that many different tenorinos or tenore di grazias have sung with great success, but Juan Diego Flores is by far the favorite of our time. amazes me every time. He never misses one of those high C's and the clarity and focused sound that he is able to produce, that really tight vibrato that just rings through, always really thrilling to hear live or on recordings. Now, of course, what we just heard, the role of Tonio from La Fille du Regiment by Donizetti, is a great example of a tenorino role or a tenore di grazia role. Also the role of Alvino from La Sonambula, the role of Don Ramiro in La Cenerentola, that's Rossini, and also Nemarino, which I've already mentioned, from L'Elysir d'Amore by Donizetti. That is a role that some people consider it a lyric tenor role, a light lyric tenor role, but other people would say that it belongs in the tenore di grazia role as well, or category as well. Other examples of successful tenore di grazia singers or tenorinos that are quite popular right now, Javier Camarena and also Lawrence Brownlee have made great successes in similar roles to Juan Diego Flores. So we have a great group of singers actively on the stage right now in this type of repertoire. Now we move on to the full lyric tenors, and these are roles that are basically the heaviest of all the lyric tenor repertoire. They need a little bit more power than the light lyric tenors or the tonore di grazia singers, and a little bit more dramatic thrust in the sound. 
but still we want a smooth liquid legato connection and a nice warm timbre. We tend to find voices in this category that have more complex colors in the voice as well. And by that I mean that there's just a richer sound with more variations in the types of sound quality that they can create, a little more variety you can bring into the voice than we tend to hear with the tenore di grazia tenor. Tenore di grazia tenors tend to have extremely consistent timbres and tone colors, whereas full lyric tenors have different colors depending on what part of the voice they are using. Full lyric tenors can also be very versatile singers, sometimes moving into the lighter lyric repertoire and sometimes moving into the heavier categories as well, such as the spinto tenor repertoire. Some examples of full tenor, full lyric tenor roles include Rodolfo from Puccini's La Boheme, Lenski from Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin, the Duke in Verdi's Rigoletto, Hoffmann from Le Conte Hoffmann by Jacques Offenbach, Pinkerton from Puccini's Madame Butterfly, Des Grieux from Massenet's Manon, the title role of Faust by Gounod, the title role of Werther by Massenet, and Romeo from Gounod's Romeo et Juliette. Now there is actually a lot of variety in the different types of roles that we have in this particular category, and the variety comes from all the different operatic traditions that we have that we find in this particular category. So we have Italian opera, we have French opera, we have Russian opera. So what I wanted to do was play for you the variety that we find so that you can hear how the full lyric tenor sound manifests itself in different operatic traditions. So to start with, we're going to hear Che Galida Manina. This is one of the big arias in Act 1 from Puccini's La Boheme. This is the role of Rodolfo. And we're going to hear Ramon Vargas singing this particular excerpt at the Met in 2008. Vivo, vivo, 
Our next two examples actually feature the same singer, Pyotr Bekshawa, and what I wanted to do was show you the same singer singing two very different full lyric tenor roles from two different operatic traditions. So our first example is from Verdi's Rigoletto. This was performed at the Met in 2013, and this is the Act One aria, Questo e Quella, and listen to the kind of energy that he brings into the voice, the kind of soaring melody and a very warm, really engaging kind of timbre. <laughs> La costora fedente è qual dono di che foto le fiora la vita. Soggi questa mi torna gradita, forse un'altra, forse un'altra, domando sarà un'altra, forse un'altra. 
Contrast to what we just heard, this is the same singer, Piotr Bekshawa, singing at the Met in the same year, 2013. And this is an excerpt from Eugene Onyegin by Tchaikovsky. This is Lenski's aria, Kuda Kuda. And in this particular moment, we have this incredible long line that the tenor has to maintain. He has long phrases, very mournful in quality. He's lamenting. And in this particular excerpt, you will hear where you need that kind of connected aspect of the lyric tenor sound. But it is also a heavier sound that is called for. He needs a little bit more power, a little bit more drama than a Mozartian aria. And always, always, always an immense amount of breath control to get through some of these long phrases. Yes, no. 
want to show you an excerpt of full lyric singing, full lyric tenor singing from the French tradition. So this particular excerpt is from Gounod's Romeo et Juliette, and this is the L'Amour, L'Amour aria. This is Roberto Alagna singing at the Met in 2007. And an interesting thing about Roberto Alagna to keep in mind, he has sung a lot of full lyric tenor roles, several light lyric tenor roles, and then also several spinto roles. So this is a good example of a singer that is fairly versatile and has sung a wide spectrum of different types of roles, but he is well known for having incredibly secure technique and he does have this kind of steely metallic edge to the sound that critics often highlight in their reviews of him. So this is Roberto Alagna singing at the Met in 2007 the role of Romeo. Another French opera. This is an excerpt from Werther by Massenet, and this is the very famous aria Pourquoi me réveiller? And this is Jonas Kaufmann singing, and this is an excerpt from his Romantic Arias album that was released in 2008. And the reason I'm playing Jonas Kaufmann is because, well, A, he made an incredibly successful splash with this role at the Met when it premiered a few seasons ago, but 
Kaufman is a good example of a tenor that in many ways kind of defies any kind of concrete categorization. You can hear him sing Bizet, you can hear him sing Massenet, you can hear him sing Wagner, and he has this beautiful, dark, very richly colored sound, but seems to be able to fit it and adapt it to many different types of roles. So this is an excerpt from Werther, Jonas Kaufmann singing in 2008. Now we move on to the spinto tenor category, also sometimes referred to as the lyric dramatic tenor, or in the German-speaking countries often referred to as the jundliche heldentenor. So drawing a direct parallel to our discussion of spinto sopranos in episode 5, the spinto tenor voice lives between the lyric tenor and the dramatic heldentenors in terms of weight, and it also has a special quality of a metallic edge or squealo that slices through the orchestra. As we discussed when talking about spinto sopranos, the word spinto literally means pushed, because a spinto tenor needs to be able to push the voice to very dramatic climaxes, but he also needs to be able to pull the voice back and maintain absolute control floating seamlessly between the middle and the highest registers of the voice and also executing extreme quiet sections as well. So there's this big spectrum of expression that they need to be able to use and execute in the voice. The spinto needs all the beauty that a lyric tenor has, but also some of the weight of a dramatic tenor and enough heft and thrust to get out and project over top of a large orchestra. Some of the most well-known spinto tenors of both past and present include Giuseppe Di Stefano, Placido Domingo, Luciano Pavarotti, Franco Corelli, Marcello Alvarez, the list could go on. But with just about every single vocal category that we encounter, there are some tenors that, as we've seen, some people argue are more spinto in quality than they are lyric, but other people would argue the exact opposite. So examples of such singers in the tenor territory include UC Bierling, Carlo Bergonzi, and Jonas Kaufmann. So let's hear some examples from this particular category. And the first one we're going to start with is an excerpt from Puccini's Tosca, and we're going to hear Giuseppe Di Stefano singing this. This is from a 1950 studio recording. And before we listen, I just wanted to read for you a- an excerpt of a description of Di Stefano's voice. This is by Neil Kurtzman, and he wrote, quote, 
In its prime, Di Stefano's voice was the most beautiful Italian tenor I ever heard, to my ears even more lush and ravishing than Gili's. The tone is gorgeous. It is not spread or open. The high note is focused and thrilling. To the beauty of the voice, add this ability to find meaning and make great effects in ways that no one else did, and you have the combination that made Di Stefano unique. End quote. So really listen for this as we listen to this clip. I know that when I was listening to this for the first time, I was completely struck by that amazing diminuendo that he does in this excerpt. His ability to pull the voice back so that it's so small, but then have also have the voice flower into this beautiful, lush sound was really powerful. So this is a Luce van le Stelle from Puccini's Tosca. excerpt we're going to listen to is a big classic aria in this particular category. This is Vesti la Juba. This is from Leon Cavallo's Pelliacci, and we're going to hear Placido Domingo singing this. And this is from, this excerpt is from the 1982 film that was directed by Franco Zeffirelli. 
And interestingly, just think about this as you're listening, some people place this particular role in the Heldon tenor or dramatic tenor category. So in a way, this is an example of a role that can be cross-listed or cross-referenced in two different categories, depending on what type of sound you're after when you cast this role. Do you want that kind of metallic edge or do you want a heavier sound that you find in the dramatic category? So let's give this a listen, Placido Domingo singing Vesti la Juba. excerpt is from Bizet's Carmen. This is Don Jose's flower song or flower aria and we're going to hear Jonas Kaufman performing this live in 2006 at the Royal Opera. Now we just heard Jonas Kaufman singing an excerpt that is from a different voice category so here you're going to hear him in a different kind of guise and I just wanted to read for you a description of Kaufman's voice before we listen so that you can keep this in your mind. This particular excerpt is not describing or from a critique that directly relates to Carmen but when I read this particular review I really liked the description of his voice. It really uh, for me rang true as to what I was hearing whenever I listen to Kaufman sing. So this is by Peter McCallum, written in the Sydney Morning Herald. Kaufman's tenor voice is transparently clear, with honeyed tone and the most beautifully burnished finish. It is neither craggy nor overlight, neither overly dark nor meretricious, neither unduly pinched nor stentorian. It sits in the ideal center of those extremes with impeccable smoothness. Yet there is much more to his art than the superb sound. He molds the lines into shapes that seem to span a great arc from the first note to the last. In La Vita e Inferno from Verdi's La Forza del Destino, Kaufman etched his great picture of despair with sincere dramatic intensity of unforced integrity. He rose to the final note in a mood of whispered defeat but before it concluded, the tone had swelled to a mood of fierce defiance, a world of emotion on a single A-flat.
Throughout this episode, I have touched on how one singer may be capable of singing many different kinds of roles at the same time, or evolving over the course of their career into different voice categories. 
the legendary Luciano Pavarotti began his rise to stardom as a tenorino, singing the same kind of music that we just heard Juan Diego Flores sing. But as he became more and more popular, his public wanted to hear him sing spinto tenor roles, and some roles that are considered borderline between spinto and dramatic repertoire, like Radames in Aida. So Pavarotti worked his voice into the heavier tenor repertoire, and in doing so, significantly lengthened his career. In order to do this, he needed to bring a deeper, rounder sound to the middle and lower range of his voice, which would allow him to give the power that he needed to these spinto roles and the dramatic thrust behind them. And of course, the public loved him because he was very careful about how he pursued these roles, so we never heard him tackle something that he was not naturally ready to do. He really did naturally build these skills and this evolution of his voice into his actual technique. And because he was such a legend, I felt we absolutely have to hear some of this today. So we honor him by listening to an entire dramatic tenor aria sung by him, the powerful and show-stopping Di Quella Piera, this is the role of Manrico from Verdi's Il Travatore. Di quella pira, that Pavarotti made incredibly famous, and this is Nessun Dorma by Puccini from Turandot. And this is an aria that there's actually quite a bit of scholarship out there about the rise of fame of this particular uh, excerpt from this opera. And Pavarotti had a lot to do with it, but also the three tenors had a lot to do with it. There's a great kind of history around it. 
But this particular aria, whenever we hear Pavarotti sing it in recordings, it's just, it has such a vibrancy to it. We never doubt that Pavarotti is going to hit those notes. And when he does hit those notes, there's this shimmery edge and kind of solid nature to the sound that it is awe-inspiring every single time. come to the dramatic tenor or held in tenor category, the heaviest of all tenor voices. And I have put the terms dramatic tenor and held in tenor together because one can view them as being part of one large category, even though there are some nuances between the two different terms. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But a basic way of thinking about it is that the held in tenor roles are simply roles on the dramatic tenor roster that are found within Wagnerian operas and generally more Germanic operas. So what are we looking for in a dramatic tenor voice? Similar to the dramatic soprano, a dramatic tenor needs to be full of emotion and energy, giving us the heroic tenor sound that we love so much in composers like Verdi and Wagner. Dramatic tenors need weight in the sound, power, and thrust. The timbre of the dramatic tenor voice can really vary from one singer to another. Some dramatic tenors do have a metallic quality similar to a spinto, while other dramatic tenors have a dark, burnished sound that almost makes them sound like baritones with a high tessitura. 
Some dramatic tenors make their mark with incredible power in thrust behind the voice, while others are known for producing a mighty ocean of sound that is as wide feeling as it is deep. You also need a lot of stamina to sing dramatic tenor roles and a strong physical appearance to match the intense, robust sound being created. Now, there are several roles that I rhymed off in our discussion of spinto tenors that some people would argue belong more in the dramatic tenor territory, Roles such as Canio and Pagliacci, or Dick Johnson in La Fanchula del West, I think I mentioned those. And sometimes these roles can be referred to as tenore di forza, or tenore robusto, because they call for a robust, ringing sound. They can be, and have been, sung very successfully by tenors in both camps. The title role of Verdi's Otello is another example of a role that is generally considered to be a dramatic tenor through and through, but has been sung successfully by tenors who make most of their bread and butter in the spinto category. So Otello is actually where we're going to start with our examples for this category, and we're going to start with another very historic recording featuring the singer who premiered the role of Otello. This is Francesco Tamagna, and Verdi handpicked Francesco Tamagna to premiere this role because he wanted a tenor that could just come out onto the stage in his opening entrance and just blast through a thick orchestra with this incredible wall of sound. And so you need power, you need a presence in the voice to be able to do this, and Tamagna had all of this all wrapped up in one package. And this excerpt featuring Tamania was recorded in 1903, so not the year that the opera made its premiere, but still within a reasonable time period that we get a really wonderful window into what the premiere might have sounded like. provide you with some examples of the many different types of voices that can successfully pull off this role, we're going to hear a very different sounding singer from Francesco Tamagna. This is John Vickers singing in 1960 at the Rome Opera House, another very successful Otello in his time. And what I found very striking about this particular excerpt was John Vickers' tends to have just a bigger sound. It sounds like the voice is wider, like there's more sound coming out. And so it's and it's all a little little bit heavier, but still very successful and still produces that great effect of a mega entrance for our Otello character. <laughs> Oh, 
lastly, moving on to our held in tenor roles, there's actually quite a long list of these types of roles when you start compiling them, although not all of them are Wagnerian. In the Wagner camp, we have the title role of Parsifal, we have Siegfried and Sigmund from the Ring Cycle, we have the title role of Lohengrin, Tristan from Tristan und Isolde, the title role of Tannhäuser, and the role of Walter in Die Meistersinger. All of these Wagner roles can be considered held in tenor roles, and there are also several others that would make this list as well. And a few of them are cross-listed in other categories. We've already mentioned Lohengrin, and I believe Tristan came up, or no, Zygmunt came up in one of our former categories. But all of these are considered strong held in tenor repertoire options. Now, if you want to sing held in tenor rep, but you are trying to look beyond Wagner, there are several roles written by Richard Strauss that fall into this category. The role of Herod in Isalame, the role of Bacchus in Ariadne of Naxos, the Emperor in Die Frau ohne Schatten, all Richard Strauss, and also the role of the drum major in Elbenberg's Wozzeck can also be considered a held in tenor role as well. So for our examples of held in tenor voices, I've chosen two contrasting singers. And the first is a singer we've heard already a few times before. So this again is Jonas Kaufmann. But this is an example that shows you the heaviest Germanic repertoire that we've really heard him sing. This is an excerpt from the end of Act 1 of Die Velkure. This is, again, Jonas Kaufmann singing at the Met in 2011. And really listen to the huge orchestra that he has to sing over. He really needs to get his sound out to the audience. And there's a huge crescendo in this excerpt. And really listen for the kind of power that he has to produce. I do think that even though this role is cross-listed by some as a spinto tenor, that it is a very good example of the Heldon tenor power and held in tenor sound that Jonas Kaufmann brings to a ring cycle performance. And 
And our last excerpt is from Wagner's Die Meistersinger. This is the Act 3 prize song featuring Ben Hepner. And this excerpt is from a CD called The Masters of the Voice, released in 2004 with Sir George Schulte conducting and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra playing. And in this particular excerpt, I've chosen it because... A, it's a beautiful aria, so you get to hear the kind of intense beauty and romanticism that is part of Wagner's musical language. But even though there is a very big orchestra, it doesn't have a bombastic sound. It doesn't have a kind of an overwhelming quality to it, but there is still a lot of instruments that the singer has to sing over top of. And the way that the melody is written in this particular aria, it starts very small and almost contemplative, and then the melody tends to grow and grow in energy and intensity, and the harmonies kind of spin out over long, long phrases. And so in order to pull this off, the singer needs to be able to continue the energy and continue spinning out the sound through these melodies. And so you need that kind of stamina, you need control over long phrases, and you do need a big sound so that it can continue to grow and blossom as the orchestra grows and blossoms underneath you. So this is Ben Hepner singing the prize song from Die Meistersinger in 2004.
Thank you so much for listening to episode 10 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I know I covered quite a bit of terrain today and we listened to a lot of different excerpts, but hopefully I've given you lots to think about and listen for as you continue in your opera listening, whether it is live performances or your favorite recordings. If you enjoyed today's topic, make sure to give episode 5 a listen of our podcast series on the soprano voice type, and look out for future episodes on other voice types. We definitely have mezzo-sopranos, baritones, and basses on our roster of podcast topics. If you like our podcast and want to support its continuation, please consider making a donation at www.metguild.org podcast. We love being able to bring you these podcasts as a free resource, but anything you can give helps us further our goal of bringing opera education to the widest possible audience. I'm happy to tell you that the Met Opera Guild podcast will be continuing throughout the holidays with episodes covering the Met holiday productions of The Barber of Seville on Tuesday, December 22nd and Deflator Mouse on December 30th. I hope that you will enjoy these episodes maybe as you are traveling or perhaps even with your family and friends. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening. Music